Proverbs chapter 8, the reading from the Old Testament will be verses 22 through 31. Lend your attention, this is God's word. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Thus far the reading of God's holy word and vision of the power and the wisdom of our God on display there, a vision of the unique delight he takes in wisdom, and it's not wrong to hear in this, the unique delight that he takes in the beloved Son, the eternal word through whom all things were made, and to rejoice in the delight that he takes in us through the Lord Jesus Christ as his true children, and this and display of his remarkable grace and mercy. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon uh, the reading and the preaching of his word. Wonderful is your name, O Lord, made known by the heavens, their beauty, their vastness, the power to which they attest. Wonderful is your name, O Lord, on display in the Lord Jesus Christ who came and embraced sinners and by his embrace welcomes pardoning and imparting life. Wonderful is your name, O Lord, that we bear. Press the blessing upon our, word, our hearts even now as your word goes forth. Attend the meditation of my heart, the words of my lips. Bring forth life as only you can. And posture us, Lord, as the hungry before you and feed us. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Continuing our time in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Reflecting on the third commandment, which comes to us from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. This is God's word. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, 
For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Thus ends God's word. And question 55 asks, what is forbidden in the third commandment? The third commandment forbiddeth all profaning or abusing of anything whereby God maketh himself known. Uh, there were certain rules that we had to follow in the Peace Corps as volunteers who were living abroad, who were not citizens of the country in which we lived. And many of these rules were set in place because of the nature of our position. Uh, we were very visible in the communities that we lived in. Everybody knew where the American lived. Everybody knew the word volunteer in the language and that our residence was in a particular place. It was a very visible position that we occupied. And further, we weren't there as private citizens, strictly speaking. We were there as representatives, not with any sort of diplomatic power or immunity, and quite the contrary, uh, very vulnerable to giving the wrong idea by virtue of wrong behavior of the country uh, we were representing. Uh, there was a very good chance that um, for those of us particularly living in small towns, small villages, we were going to be the only United States citizen that anyone ever met in the flesh. And so in a very real way, we were that which generated their understanding of who and what a United States citizen was. And because of this, there were pretty restrict rules uh, in place for what we could and could not do. Unsurprisingly, given man's sinful nature, there were any number of volunteers who were sent home <laughs> in disgrace, having disgraced themselves and having disgraced the name that they bore. And it did real damage to those communities because those communities forever remembered not just the Peace Corps, but the United States and her citizens in the disgraceful light of this one person's behavior. It's a weighty responsibility to bear a name that's not your own, isn't it? It's kind of a foreign notion to us. We think it primarily in individualistic terms. Once upon a time, you would have thought about the family name, like doing credit to your family's name. The name that you bore, the life that you lived under that name, it wasn't just significant for you. Uh, it had a, a real abiding meaning for everyone who bore that name. Now certainly the situation with Christians, we bear the name of Christ Christian. That's such a good word. It's a good name. <laughs> but it's a wonderful word as well. It, it's lost something of its force, but I hope it hasn't for you. We're Christians. We bear the name of Christ. We bear God's name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a complexity because the world hates the name of Christ, and so it's ever interested in finding out the worst conceivable angle on everything that the church does in order to subsidize 
her pre-commitment to a hatred of the name of Christ. So that's a hard situation, <laughs> admittedly. But if we're honest with ourselves, we also have to say that we've supplied them with no lack of ammunition. <laughs> that our interactions with the world, our interactions with our neighbors, our interactions with our family have supplied us with much reason to see ourselves maybe more closely than we'd like to, to my disgraced colleagues in the Peace Corps who should be sent home and who left a community with a nearly indelible impression of what it meant to be a Christian. Now, the remarkable thing is the Lord doesn't just send us packing. <laughs> That's striking, isn't it? Consider how many times you've brought disgrace upon the name. How many times you've profaned the name. You usually just construe it in the broadest sense of the comportment, the behavior. We used to say conversation. Conversation. <laughs> Which is unfolded under the name of Christian. Christ hasn't cast you off. Here you sit. He hasn't thrown you aside. He hasn't set you home. He hasn't even made known the fullness of the disgrace which you've brought him name, which in and of itself is a great kindness, is it not? I'm continually struck by that. The Lord doesn't air all our dirty laundry for everyone to see. It's terrifying to think about. But the fact is, we've all got dirty laundry. He doesn't air it for everyone, and this in his great kindness. So, even as we wrestle with the very real disgrace <laughs> which our sins bring upon the name, we're also struck by a kindness, a mercy, a patience that is not quick to cast aside, that's not quick to cast off, of which we have all been the recipients, make no mistake. <laughs> and so I wanted to consider just a few of what the catechism, a few of the dynamics, a few of the behaviors, a few of the considerations that the catechism would press upon our hearts as we consider what the third commandment presses upon us. What the third commandment forbids us. I'm taking my three points here directly from the larger catechism. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 13 reads, The sins forbidden in the third commandment are making profession of religion in hypocrisy. Being ashamed of it. Or being ashamed to it. So those are the three things I'd like to consider. Hypocrisy, ashamedness, and shamefulness when it comes to the mammoth privilege and responsibility of bearing the name of God. Of being members in truth of his family such that we bear his name. So first... The commandment forbids hypocrisy. You can look, if you'd like, at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We read as follows. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. We get one of Paul's classic vice lists. You find them variously in his epistles. Romans uh, 1 being perhaps the most well-known iteration of this. But what's so striking is you hear this. Paul's writing to Timothy. Paul's instructing Timothy about his ministry that's going to continue beyond his death. Paul's nearing the end of his course. He's glimpsing the church age. He's glimpsing the age of ordinary ministry, the non-apostolic age. He says, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. There's going to come times of difficulty. And he lists all of these vices, dreadful lists, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, disobedient, and so on and so forth. They go, oh, this is going to be awful. The world's going to be terrible. It's going to be such a hard set of circumstances in which the church as a little community of light is going to have to bunker down in. And then you get to the end. That the list that he's just enumerating is not talking about the world. It's talking about the church. The enemy is very much inside the house. So tumultuous are those days. He's warning Timothy about this dreadful capacity of the flesh that is capable of deceiving the self. That one is a true participant in life even though these vices occupy the center. Denying the power of religion most likely having the appearance of godliness but denying its power there was a charge that the Pharisees and the scribes were consistently charged with from Christ and it was their hypocrisy it was the raging disjunction between not just what they said But even in a manner of their external religious comportment, being woefully out of keeping with the death which sat at their heart. Mm. That's the picture that he gives here. It's this disjunction, incongruity, unbridgeable chasm. The image the Lord uses is whitewashed tombs kind of put a face on this. It's a facade of life thinly papering over the reality of death at the heart. 
So the first thing that we're struck with is we're, we're not immune to this just because we're in the new covenant era. Timothy would have no one rest in the external elements of your religion. Even though the external elements of our religion are simplified, there's only like a few of them. There's much less externalia adorning the life of the church now. But even with the reduction of the number of forms, you might say, Paul is instructing a young minister, he says, look, don't let anybody rest in formalism. He's like, there's going to be forms. And they're lovely and they're beautiful and they're good. And don't let anyone ever detract from the beauty of the forms simply because of the danger of formalism. But don't let anybody deceive themselves into thinking just because they participate in the forms that they're not invulnerable to formalism. Hmm. Now there's a sense there in which Paul expects Timothy to be able to recognize these people. Did you hear that? He says avoid them. Now that's not a charge for you to go sniffing out the hypocrites. (laughs) I implore you not to go down that road. He's talking to a pastor here. And even the warning that you could assume that a young pastor would give would be done in love. Such that even a hypocrite, while pretty far gone, isn't unreachable. There's a sense that you get in the Lord's ministry that it is the scribes and the Pharisees who are the farthest from the kingdom. But even Nicodemus seemed to have been brought along. And so there's hope for hypocrites. (laughs) It's not the unpardonable sin. And in fact, the assumption is that in love, Timothy is going to be aware of this dreadful propensity of the flesh such that he warns those walking down this road against continuing down this road and returning to the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving from him the sincerity and the earnestness of faith which he and he alone can give. But the warning that's more pressing for us, I think, is that we should consider that we've got this in us. It's not just a matter of sniffing out those hypocrites. It's a matter of glimpsing the seeds of hypocrisy in all of our hearts. If the seeds of hypocrisy are set forth in the vice list, coupled with, let's say, a comfort with vices at the center, then we've all got that in us, don't we? Certainly we've got these vices in us, lovers of self, guilty all around, myself included. Lovers of money, cruelty, disobedience, slanderous, who hears curb the tongue? So the more pressing call in the light of this death isn't, let's go sniff out the hypocrites. But certainly if you're just a formal, if you're here just checking the boxes, stop, repent. Don't rest until you have true participation. But that is not the majority call for the congregation that I know. The majority call for the congregation that I know is, look, we've got these seeds in us. 
and it brings disgrace to the name. That's the assumption here, the denial of its power, the denial of the power of the name in contenting ourselves with the presence of these things. Now there's some tension there because there's no scenario where these things disappear entirely. So that doesn't seem to be the call. I don't know how you're going to destroy pride entirely in this life. I just, I just don't see it happening. Mm-hmm. So then what's the call? The call is a grieving over the presence of these things. The call is repentance that we continue to see these things on display in our heart. Repentance that these things continue while not dominating us to persuade us to act in keeping with their destructive propensity and not the principle of life which now sits at the center. The call isn't sniff out the hypocrites. The call is, hey, I I think I've got this in me. And that's disgraceful to the name that I bear. Mm. It would have me, in the light of what I've received, not love self above all others, but love Christ above all others. And love these others above myself. And so on and so forth. You could go down the list. Our contentment with the disjunction is the problem. There's always going to be a gap between what we possess and what we are in this life. It's when we content ourselves with the gap. It's when we put off that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Which is going to characterize all of our days. That we begin to tip in this dangerous and dreadful direction. Secondly, our ashamedness. You can look at Mark chapter 8. That was the point I felt most strongly about, so hopefully the second two will be shorter. (laughs) Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. And we read, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There was a certain uh, pride that the volunteers took uh, identifying themselves as citizens of the United States. It's not hard to see how the flesh gets involved there. People were in awe of the glamour of being a United States citizen, the freedom that my passport afforded me, the, the idea of wealth and luxury that attends notions of what goes on in the United States. They wanted to know, particularly as someone from Chicago, how often Michael Jordan and I had coffee. <laughs> like those were the sorts of things. And so you like kind of walked around like I'm a citizen of the United States and I come from Chicago. And it kind of afforded you a certain standing and 
Many people seized upon it. Our flesh here, even though we've been given a designation far more honorable than that of Chicagoans, our flesh here shrinks back from it. There's this temptation of the flesh to feel ashamed of the name, ashamed of the sin. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is pressing upon us here. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now again, we ought not to make a sort of absolute pronouncement that this is somehow the unforgivable sin. And we know that that indeed is not the case because we watched the foremost of the disciples shrink back ashamed. That's what we see happening in Peter, right? And it's not before Caesar whom he shrinks. It's before a slave girl, This was not Peter before the epic halls of those who trace their lineage back to the gods, ostensibly. (laughs) This is a slave girl around a fire in the dark. You were one of his followers? No. Weren't you one of his? No. Weren't you? I I know. So take this and to make it an absolute pronouncement that if you've ever shrunk back in shame, then you are unredeemable is wrong. The Lord restored Peter. But Peter also wept afterwards, didn't he? We should probably go on and say that this wasn't the only shrinking back that Peter experienced, even in the wake of Pentecost. The shrinking back was a little bit different, but it's still shrinking back from the gospel. Christ says here, not just the Son of Man, but from the words of the Son of Man, if you shrink back in shame. So what happened when Paul had to confront Peter? Now, Christ wasn't strictly present there as one whom he was denying, but he was certainly shrinking back from the gospel. He was certainly shrinking back from the power of the gospel that he had seen as an apostle who made the pronouncement of forgiveness and saw it extended to the Gentiles, and then he shrunk back from the Gentiles. So this isn't even something pre-Pentecost exclusively, nor is this something apparently that one can only do once in one's life. (laughs) Rather, what it presses upon our hearts is the fleshly propensity to shrink back from our Lord. And that's grievous. So once more, we're struck that we have this in us. That the name above all names, the name at the sound of which every knee will bow. There's so few names that evoke such universal acclaim. (laughs) No name rivals his. The fact that that's restricted to a limited community right now. doesn't change the fact that it is the most excellent of names. The fact that its excellency is acknowledged only by one community right now does not change the fact that it is the most excellent of names. And yet we're tempted to shrink back from it. What sits at the heart of this? 
we fear man more than we fear God. I mean, you can really drill a lot of these things down to just a couple of simple observations. Partly it's understandable. We see them, we don't see him. (laughs) In one sense, they feel more real. They look more real. They seem to be generating reality with more force and plainness than he's generating reality. That's why the word of God is so important. That's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Our Our ears are more reliable guides than our eyes. Hearing is a more reliable sense than seeing and feeling. And so we bear the name that is above all names. We bear the name that is going to be magnified above every name on that great day. Such that every knee bows, even as enemies confess, you are Lord. And his children delight to saying, yes, you are Lord. But right now we're in this strange tension. But we shrink back because of the disgrace that the world heaps upon the name and we're embarrassed to share in that. Even though we know the world is passing away. Even though we've seen His excellencies on display in such a way that He surpasses all others. Giving His life as a ransom. Demonstrating an otherworldly love for enemies. Cleansing, healing, feeding, giving sight, health. And yet when conversation comes up here or there, it's just a reluctance, a shrinking back that tempts our hearts. And in so doing, we're rightly bearing false witness to the excellence of that name. We're doing them no favors because they're going to stand in awe of that name on that day. And if we shrink back from that name, it tells them that they can show it no regard whatsoever. And so we do them a disservice as well. Now you've all experienced this, I'm sure. It's not just the Son of Man, it's also His words. There's always occasions where we look back and say, I wish I would have said this or that, or I wish I would have had the courage to speak up. Sometimes it's not even courage, sometimes it's wisdom. I I wish I knew what I could have said. And it seems to me that a great place to start is proactively seeking the Lord's provision. Lord, if you give me opportunity today, Help me not to shrink back. Lord, if, if there is an opportunity to, to confess your name, give me the courage to do that. Paul sought his church's help in praying for boldness. Even Paul, pray for me, church, that I might bring the word with boldness. That courage is a virtue supplied to us from the bounty of Christ. It's not something you or I can muster up. We can't put on rocky music in the basement and get amped up to go bear witness to a world that's fading away. It's a heavenly grace. And so we seek it, not from music, not from sentiment, 
from the storehouse of his riches, who emboldens. It is worth noting that the same Peter who shrunk back before slave girl also did testify before the courts of men where the stakes were much, much higher. And he said, whether it's right to obey you or God, my conscience is bound to obey him. He takes the cowardly and he makes them brave. (laughs) Not in such a way that their courage is the ground of their acceptance, but in a truly plain and evidentiary way that something different than our flesh is at work in us. And it's the Spirit of God. And last, our shamefulness. And this but briefly. Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 4. Could have gone any number of places with this. I'll start in verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead let there be thanksgiving. I don't care how often you appeal to the prophets and that they get a little bit mouthy. There's some language in the prophets that's a little bit grisly. It doesn't justify crude talk. It doesn't. There's a reason here he highlights the sacrificial nature of Christ's offering here because the sacrifice had to be without blemish. Even in the Old Testament, we're reading through Leviticus right now, you're struck like it's got to be a blemishless creature. It's got to be a pure creature, a defectless creature. And that's what he highlights here about Christ's sacrifice. What it configured in the body of an animal was perfectly embodied in the purity of his offering as the lamb. And so for the community that's been redeemed by the pure sacrifice, how unfitting that crudeness baseness would cut our talk. That's the point that he makes here. There's a certain purity that he enjoins. Be imitators of God, the one who is light, in whom there is no darkness, no, none at all. I love that verse. Be imitators of God. Purity as beloved children. The purity of love. Walk in love. The purity of love. As Christ loved us. The purity of love. And gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That purity of other concernedness. Juxtaposed with that debasing and dehumanizing appropriation of others in sexual immorality. Crude and filthy talk. The loveliness of the purity of Christ juxtaposed with what we can sometimes be all too comfortable with. In coarse joking, even in the coarseness to which we expose ourselves, movies, TVs, TV shows. Are are there still TV shows? I trust there are. We're supposed to feel the purity which has redeemed us. We're supposed to feel the purity of the one who has placed his name upon us. And we're supposed to yearn for that purity to characterize our interactions with one another. A sincere love that is interested in building one another up by truth. 
A sincere love which truly considers the good of the other. Such that even if they enter into a bout of folly, you're not quick to pounce on them, but truly and earnestly considers what is good for this person right now. Is this immaturity? Is this coarse cruelness for the sake of cruelness? Are they nervous, uncomfortable? What's going on here? I'm earnestly interested in knowing the state of your soul and how I can advance its good. That sort of pure, earnest interest in others is the very thing we see on display in Christ's concern for us. That's the true revelation of our God and Father, the one who is pure. We're mindful of these things, not to be cast into fits of despair because these things characterize much of our interactions, but to be mindful of them and to be aware of the only one who can lead us in a different direction, who can convict and yet not destroy who can highlight failures and yet restore, who can cleanse at the level of the heart which yields speech, courage, humility, sincerity. Take these things from his hand. Repent of the ways that we've all brought disgrace upon the wonderful name that we bear earnestly seek a greater understanding of how to walk fittingly of the name that we bear, which has been bestowed upon us in grace, mercy, purity, and love. Let's pray. Almighty God, a great gift indeed in having been given your name. We acknowledge, Lord, we're far more interested in our own names than in yours more often than not. And this too is disgraceful. And yet you do not cast us off as a father is disciplining his children, raising them up, forming them, fashioning them, looks at them through the Lord Jesus Christ, that perfect name bearer who sees what we will be on that great day of perfect purity all in all. I give you thanks that you did not cast off. Teach us, O Lord, how to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel by which we have been called. Pray in Christ's name, amen.